It's my little girl's birthday today. We were gonna have a barbecue like you guys. And, uh, she was gonna play outside and my wife hold my hand and talk about growing up things. And then when it got dark, we'd all go to sleep together. I'll sleep together in the dark. And everything would be just like it was before. Hello, listening people. Hello. You're listening to Spit and Polish Presents the... I was going to say the Mystery Box or Unappreciated Masterpieces, but no, it's our other show, Pictures Powwow. I'm one of the hosts, Ryan Swinsky. And I'm the other one, Bartek. Hi, Bartek. How are you? Good. How are you, Ryan Swinsky? I'm, I'm very well. I got overwhelmed introducing our show because we have had so many different shows on our show. Yes. So I was like, which one are we doing? To be honest, I was thinking it as well. So when you said it, I'm like, yeah, wait, what? So we're spin Polish, yes, likingly, because we're always spitting, and we both happen to be Polish. Mm-hmm. And it's a little joke there, you see. See, we say Polish, and then it's actually no, it's joke Polish. Yeah, I got Get it five it. years ago. Oh, yeah. you're getting it now though. Yeah. Great. So we are your host Ryan and Bartek. We're doing Pictures Powwow, a weekly show in which we do a movie that has come recommended, whether it's from Bartek, myself, or the listening people mm-hmm. at home or on the bus or in a grave that have dug for them. And this time we gave it to you. For me. For you. And I recommended a movie. Yes, you did. Diddy Kong, your favorite Kong. I did pretty good. the choice of Falling Down from 1993, the Joel Schumacher movie. Oh, and you love Joel Schumacher. <laughs> Do, doesn't tr- everyone? Yeah, we did Trespass, and you said you love him. I love Joel Schumacher. Uh, but Bartek, we're not alone. What do you mean? I'm, I'm looking around the room right now, and there's only two of us. Well, that's because we're getting people calling in some some other podcasters coming in to our, to our area. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Tell me through the form of a chat. Oh, <laughs> so we are joined by uh, a fellow podcasting group. These guys talk about TV shows, not movies, though. So, Ooh. you know, not exclusive, exclusively more TV shows. But we are joined by the Chats podcast or Chats Kids. How are you guys? Hello. Welcome. Well, it's us. We're from the United States. It's me, Darth Vader from the planet Mars. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> It appears the other Chaskit has transformed. I'm uh, a space man. No, this is about right. This is how he is. I promise you. In private, that's how he talks. As soon as the mics go off, he's just, hey guys, good episode. Down oh, there. God, I'm sorry. I forgot we were on mic. Hey, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> that's we're embarrassing. Good. So, do introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your show for, for our listening people and for us. I mean, Bartek hasn't had the chance to listen because he doesn't watch television shows. So he was like, well, what can I, what can I engage in? I'm like, oh, well, you don't man. watch TV. We're about so, to have a we're about to have a regular West Side Story snap off over visual <laughs> media. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's, a, that's such a polite sounding version of it. Um, yeah. So we're my name is Magellan, and I'm here with Alan. Um, and we are co-hosts of Chats, a television podcast. Uh, we have been the best of friends since we were in high school together. And the way that we stay friends is <laughs> through our kindness to each other. And also by watching uh, the entirety of like cult classic TV shows parceled out two episodes at a time per week. Sort of like the anti-binging uh, is how we do it. 
And currently we're watching Babylon 5. That's our that's what we're doing right yeah. now. I love Babylon 5. We yeah, I've talked fantastic. about it on the show before because we've had a lot of Babylon 5 actors appear. Yeah, you, you started watching it again, then everyone from the show keeps appearing. Everyone's like, hey, it's me. <laughs> or when we did an episode on Dickie Roberts, former child star, uh, uh, the character who is played by Jeff Conway, uh, 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 mm. Zach Allen from Babylon 5, he's in it mm-hmm. in a segment where it's like, and all the child stars of Hollywood sing a song. And I'm like, but he's never been a child star. He was known for being Knicky, <laughs> but he was like a full grown adult. He, he, so why yeah. he calls there? himself <laughs> In the he movie. was a teen yeah, in that, star. In, in that yeah, the the like twenty eight year old teen star. <laughs> yeah, like I love it. So, teen um, you guys have talked about a variety of TV shows. So currently, you're doing Babylon Five. What are some other ones that you guys have covered in the past? So we're on. We consider Babylon Chatsalon Five uh, our sixth season. <laughs> so in the past, we've done uh, Farscape, which was our first season, our bit, our sort of big marquee introducing ourselves podcast. Uh, we did Freaks and Geeks. We did Avatar: The Last Airbender. We did. Uh, well, John, what else did we do? Uh, the newsroom. I, I really thought you had it. I trusted you <laughs> I was entirely. So close. I was so close. <laughs> no, it's the newsroom and it's Pushing Daisies. That's everything. Yeah, pushing you got Daisies. it. You got does it. it yeah. Does it bother you that your sixth season is a show that has five in the title? We've had this every conversation. Week. Yeah, every week every, he says this is week. season six, Chaslon Five, and I hate it. So when you do season seven, you got to do this TV show Saturn Seven, right? That's uh-huh. what you got to do, and then season nine would be Deep yeah. We're Space actually nine. we're gonna You've do Seventh cover. Heaven. It's it's gonna be really oh, good. Seventh oh God, heaven. yeah, yum yum. So guys, we did falling down. I'll give the listening people a bit of heads up. If you listening people have not had the chance to watch falling down, recommend that you do because we're gonna get into a full on discussion about it. We're gonna go through the ins and outs. The the intricacies, the plots, the characters. So if you haven't had the chance, do check out Falling Down because we're going to get into it. Now, Bartek. Yes. You're, you've done quite a lot of movies on this show. I made all of them. You've made all of them. <laughs> when you say done, we've <laughs> talked about them. We've done the talk. This is our <laughs> second Joel Schumacher movie on, on, on the podcast. We, yes. we did Trespass. I'm going to ask you... How would you rank the Joel Schumacher movies we've done on the show from best to worst out of the two? Which one's better? Which one's worse? Uh, jumping back to a sentiment I had at the end of our Grease 2 episode, obviously I, I think that Falling Down is the better film, but because the other one's an unappreciated masterpiece, I have to fight for that one. Okay, so you're fighting for Trespass. I have to. So you're mm. choosing Ben Mendelsohn over Michael Douglas. It's a again, tough pick. Again, I'm saying I prefer one over the other, but I have to defend the unappreciated mask because that was a mission statement. Uh, fair enough. So, Alan and Magellan, what is yeah. your history with this film falling down? Have you seen it before <laughs> having to do it for this show? Uh, I was born the year that it came out. Is that Ditto. Uh, Ditto. That's a history of a kind, I suppose. So you could have um, seen it then. You could have seen it in the cinema. No excuse. Yeah, I could have popped out the womb and then really... Well, I couldn't have seen it in the cinema, but I could have uh, gotten it on VHS or you know, at uh, Blockbuster or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never seen it. And I'm realizing right now, I think this is the first time I've ever seen a Joel Schumacher film. You haven't uh, seen Batman and Robin? Nope, I haven't. I have not. Batman Forever? Nope, I have not seen that one either. The Lost Boys? The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Mm, no, none, none <laughs> of the above. Making these up. None of the above. Not Phantom of the Opera. Nope. He did a Phantom movie. Bummer. Yeah, he did so it with um, Gerard Butler. 
Ah, yes, I remember. Uh, do not need yum, to yum. watch that. It sounds like. Um, yeah, so I don't have any history with it. I mean, I like Michael Douglas. I like the game. I've seen him in that. I feel like that's kind of around the same era. Era, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, had you at yeah. least heard of this movie before having to do it? For no, this? I have. I had not. Maybe Alan had, but okay. I have not. So what about you, Alan? Any history with this? Heard of this before having to do it for the show? Anything? So I definitely had heard of this film. Um, back, way back in the day, pre-podcasting, I was a big fan of the now-defunct film website Screened. Screened.com, okay. rest in peace. And uh, they mentioned. I remember them mentioning this film as like, being like, I wonder if this actually holds up or if this is, you know, terrible in hindsight. But we were, they remembered liking it back in the day. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of my history with Schumacher. I've seen Batman and Robin. Uh, a friend of mine owned a VHS copy of that movie and it's bad. It's fun. It's like fun. Bad. Like it might be might I might put on like a commentary chats list because Oh yeah, uh, it's amazing. You know, I Ice to Meet You is just Arnold my Schwarzenegger fav- has uh, My favorite is the mad scientist who turns poison ivy into poison ivy who plays Lex Luthor's father in Smallville. That guy. <laughs> um Oh, wow. He has like the full mad scientist there with the like the white streak in it, and she's mm-hmm. basically like, "I'm gonna tell the authorities on you. You're not gonna get away with this crime that you're committing." And he's like, "Really? Well, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm just afraid you're going to have to die." And he pushes <laughs> yeah. her into a vat of poisons, and she becomes poison ivy. But the way he delivers it, he's like, really like genuine at first. He's like, "I'm so sorry to hear that, but I'm afraid you're going to have to die." <laughs> He just goes full crazy. And you're you're upset that he isn't this main villain of the movie. You're like, come back. He'll be back for Smallville in a few years' time. Uh Yeah, it's it's a very campy film. And then the the only Joel Schumacher film that I have seen um, is 2002's Phone Booth. Oh, that is a classic. uh, Is appropriately also a very messy film that attempts to say some big things and kind of whiffs it in a fun way. I really like the premise of Phone Booth, but it's it's just such a goofy film in a lot of ways. So my history with Joel Schumacher is I've seen about, I would say now, 95% of his movies. I think there's a couple I haven't seen. Um, soon I will, uh, <laughs> because for our other show, we have a Joel Schumacher movie in the box of mystery movies. That's The Incredible Shrinking Woman with <laughs> Lily Tomlin. That I've not seen. Mm. Uh, but I've seen most of his feature films, at least. I don't know if he's done anything short films or TV. But I've never liked many of his films. This is... Falling Down is the one I like. And I have said many times, Joel Schumacher frustrates me. Because Falling Down proves, in my opinion, that he is a fantastic, brilliant, and wonderful director. And he's never, in my opinion, reached the heights that he does in just pure direction and filmmaking that he does in this particular feature film, Falling Down. So I have a real love-hate relationship with Joel Schumacher because I'm like, Mm. I see, I've seen your brilliance and you've never done it again. Okay, so when you're editing this episode, make sure you add in a part about Trespass. Oh yeah, and Trespass, great (laughs) film. It's got Ben Mendelsohn and Nicolas Cage. What do you want? (laughs) It's got Nick Cage, man. Oh man, that sounds great. And Nicole Kidman. I mean, what else do you want? So, um, what did we all think about the film Falling Down? Now, Bartek, before before that we all get into it, what was your history with this movie? I hadn't seen it before. You, no, I, Ryan showed it to me earlier this year, so he knows what my history is. And, I, but I hadn't heard of it before you showed it to and me. And I grew up with this movie. This was like a staple. 
for me. Really? Yeah. I've yeah. seen this a million times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had a movie night and Ryan said, okay, we're going to watch Falling Down. And I think I'd heard him mention it a few times. Like, oh, it's a film he likes. And then he showed it to us and we all really, really liked it. Mm. Oh, that's nice. So, so Bartek, second time watching it. Mm-hmm. How did you feel? Yeah, it still held up. It was good as the first time. And first time was still this year. Nice. Yeah. Um, what about you guys? What did you guys feel about this movie? Having not seen it before and having now seen it. Oh, man. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, go for it, Alan. Take it. Well, I think it's... I, I'm not going to come on here and say, like, this movie you like actually sucks, but we have a unique perspective on this film being from the United States and growing up with media like this and understanding how, like, films from this time affected the rest of cinema and and how culture and the things that have happened in history have affected cinema. Um, so this movie, in a lot of ways, to me, felt very dated, um, mm. but like in a really fascinating way, like the way that it, it felt bo- is both dated and prescient in a certain way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Like mm. in its prescience, it also feels dated because, like, on one hand, yeah, people like I guess we're gonna call him defense because that's what the cops call him and what yeah, um, and the credit the him at the end, yeah. that people or like Michael Douglas <laughs> or Michael Douglas. Yeah, he Don't has a name. They give him like a real name. Yeah, his name's but, Bill Foster, but we don't call him that. <laughs> No, absolutely not. Uh, people like him would exist today. They'd be big fans of Trump. They would be big MRA people. You know, yeah. people have lauded this film in the MRA community as iconic and so important. And like, man, people wish that they could also shoot up a McDonald's. And it's like, I think when you talk about Joel Schumacher being a great filmmaker, he is for sure at the end of the movie trying to get across the point that this guy is not the hero of this movie. And no at matter the how end, hard I thought he tried, it was at the very beginning. <laughs> You would hope so, brother. You would really hope yeah. so. But at the same okay. time, plenty of people watch this, and it fe- and I, in a way, I sort of agree. The film doesn't go hard enough to make that clear until the very end. And people saw this mm. and came out of it and said, "He's not really the bad guy." It's certainly it. it We're it, getting okay. it because we have modern perspective. It's, but people have yeah. walked out of this film and said, "This guy's cool." It certainly paints him very right. sympathetically in a way that is, uh, you know. People can choose to interpret that in ways that I don't think are what was intended. My yeah. my feeling about it is, if I had to guess, it it feels like one of those movies, um, like Fight Club, where on paper the critique of like you know, glo- post globalist capitalist like decaying culture america here are all the things that are wrong with it and what it's doing to us um and also here's all the things that are wrong with like how we're perceiving it and acting out against it um it's doing that Mm -hmm. and also as a film i think those things get overlooked because there are other parts that like people just are more into so like fight club is a film that i think gets gets like chronically misread um yeah and falling down feels like probably the same thing would happen to it in conversations with similar people and it's coming out around the same time um and so you know looking at it i think uh it kind of has like a dark comedic touch on yeah moments like when he's when defense is in the the scene that really stuck out to me is when he's in the the uh fast food place and he's whammy burger and whammy burger (laughs) and he's mad that they're not serving breakfast anymore and to me like i thought that was funny at first and then i thought about it and it's like holy holy shit like this is you know in the 90s this was a critique 
kind of that could have been read as like a critique of oh corporations and kind of as a critique of white male entitlement but in a sort of like Mm -hmm. distant way and nowadays Mm -hmm. in the united states like looking at an entitled white male who's like super racist and misogynist pulling a machine gun in a public place is like not a dark comedy imagined reality it's like the real fucking world you know yeah and so yeah so Adam Sandler was well behaved in Big Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I understand everything you guys are, are saying. I can see that this movie can be misread and misinterpreted when it comes to, to these things with a power fantasy. For me, you know, I have the benefit as well of having seen this movie uh, uh, well over a dozen times. For me, I remember when I first saw it that, yeah, you get this power fantasy trip when you see him go through this stuff. But I always felt like... Um, with this movie it always does pivot at the point of when you introduce Robert Duvall's character that uh, that defends Michael Douglas's character is in the wrong when you have the iconic whammy burger scene yes there's a fun aspect to it because we've all related to that idea of something or other that he explores in this movie where we're trapped in a car, where we're getting yelled at, we can't get the thing that we mm-hmm. want. And there's like that, two minutes over time. There's yeah. that little bit of you that like, man, I wish I could flip out yeah, like and GTA not have response. any consequences. I think that the movie does condemn him throughout most of it but since we're put so much into his shoes yeah that we don't fully see it i mean there's a point in the movie in which it's for me at least very clear that whether he knows it or not it's more subconscious that he is going to murder his wife and child and then himself and we still have 20 more minutes of the movie after that kind of point where he's with that family in in the little pool house Mm -hmm. or whatever it is yeah and yet the movie still has quite some time to go. But at that point, you'll pivot towards liking Robert Duvall's character because for me, they're very much similar types of men, except for one has compassion and one doesn't. Robert Duvall has compassion. He has the ability of forgiveness and understanding while defense doesn't have that anymore or has never had that. Because as we find out in the movie, he's always been a crazy guy. He's always been mentally broken. He's always been abusive. He's always been a man on the edge. But finally, he's been pushed over the edge. And this is our journey to watch him fall down. I think he is mentally broken from the very beginning of the movie when he leaves his car. Certainly. I, I agree. The movie squarely makes the attempt to condemn him to the point where he says out of his own mouth, like, oh, whoops, I'm the bad guy. (laughs) Just in case you didn't know. Like looks at camera like, wait, I'm the <laughs> Me bad, bad? Guy? Okay, good. They but got it. To, <laughs> well, to your yeah, point, yeah, that's a that's a powerful thing. Yeah. But to your it point is. about um Robert Duvall's character, I think that dude is an asshole, actually. Really? <laughs> because because okay. the place I'm where surprised. his the place where his arc ends up, or at least there are two moments towards the end. One where he's on the phone with his wife and the last interaction he has mm-hmm. with her is like, shut up. And he like calls her okay. all this awful it's stuff. It's like satisfying. It's and yeah, we'll, it, we'll, we can, and yeah then, we can talk about that. And then the other moment is the dude who's like an ass to him at work. He clocks him in the face. And is that not exactly mm-hmm. what we're talking about? The sort of like power trip fantasy of like, I just want to freak well, out yeah. on this guy. Well, we can, we'll delve into the Duval thing. Because yeah. I think 
the interesting thing about this movie. It, ha- it has three primary plots going on, two of which are more important. The third one is lesser, which is you have Defense going on his way home. You have Duval figuring out the case and you have his wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Defense, his wife, freaking out about his uh, eventual arrival. Mm-hmm. Those are the three main central plots. The wife plot is lesser. It's more of a supporting plot, while the other two are symbiotic plots that interwove into one another. Now, Bartek, how do you feel about the things that we've been talking about? Do you feel any of these similarities or the views between these kind of things? I think an interesting thing to point out is with these three stories is that the the first impressions you have of these three characters really kind of stick with you because Hmm. this is common sense, but when when you have a story, you start from the beginning and you move on with your impressions from that beginning. So the first thing we see in the film is um, the the traffic jam on that uh, highway, freeway, mm-hmm. the, the road there, and it's just, it looks like a very uncomfortable place to be. It's clearly very hot. There's flies. There's kids being annoying. His car's breaking. His car's <laughs> breaking, and he just you know opens the door, gets out, and says, "I'm going home." <laughs> that must have felt for him like a very freeing thing to do just like Mm. saying fuck this i'm going and i imagine because we don't know this character yet we don't know where he's going that's our impression of him this is might be the characters like oh this is him winding down this is him getting better obviously as it goes on very quickly we realize that's not the case yeah as soon as we go to the korean store scene we know that's extremely not the case (laughs) not the case but you have that first impression and you might think like okay there's going to be some sort of payoff to this. Like, he's going to feel better by the end, maybe? He kind of does. He kind of does, yeah. But, yeah, um, this movie has a lot of intricacies when it comes to what you guys said about it feeling dated, but also still, still feeling very present. What I find interesting about it not being American is seeing this movie as a time capsule of when it was made. I mean, this was filmed during the Rodney King riots. Mm. So yep. Yep, the boiling context. tension of L.A. was very present in this movie. Yeah. Um, but I think for me personally that the movie does a really good job of putting you in the shoes of these people living in this world, that you can see it as a time capsule of a moment, but you can also just feel it as the world of the movie, like everything's kind of boiling up, and that's really done well with the fact that it's not during a heat wave or like the hottest mm. day of the year, and you got... Joel Schumacher's known for being a very colourful director, and what I mean is not only personality-wise and tone-wise, but with actual colours in his movies. I was just about to say, yeah. And this movie really does a great job for me of using the right amount of vibrant colors. Because when you say mm, the pitch of mm-hmm. this movie, which is a guy walks home and he interacts with people and he murders people along the way or fights with people, you're expecting like a really dour movie. There's a very similar movie to this called Edmund with William H. Macy and it's set at night in New York and it's very a dour movie. This movie it's visually very fun to watch because it's bright and upbeat and that kind of is a juxtaposition to the brutality of what's going on, but it also complements the, the, the dark humor that you have spread throughout this movie. This wouldn't for me at least be a movie that depresses me when I watch it. It's a very enjoyable movie, but when you start thinking about all these nuances that the film is putting in there with this character and the environment, it is a very dark mm. movie mm-hmm. at its core but it's not a movie that is like pointing at you and being like, now feel sad. Do you feel miserable? This isn't a misery porn movie. This is an enjoyable movie 
for me at least, I can say. Mm. I know that on our podcast, we do enjoy doing these films that involve like a main character moving through many environments and meeting interesting characters along the way. I guess that's like an odyssey thing. Yeah, it's very much a fable type movie. This as well with the duality of these two men that are eventually going to meet. We even have a character that's dressed like Michael Douglas in a scene that's like... Yes, for a jump scare. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I meant the I'm not economically viable guy. They're dressed the exact same. Uh, But yeah, when it comes to this being dated, I find it interesting because, like you guys said, it also has this existing thing with you guys in America where this boiling point that you have here in 1993 that they're introducing in this movie, you see this kind of mentality still boiling up and still seething and getting into American life today. Like you guys mentioned Trump. Mm-hmm. And all of that and the mm-hmm. kind of areas that that explores. But obviously, this area of American society has been brewing for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And this film is a part of that journey that we're at now. What I find very interesting, a little touch that I really, really liked that I found interesting. I listened to the commentary track of this movie. There's a bit in the Korean grocery store where he's like, I'm rolling back the prices to 1965. <laughs> it's like, why that year? <laughs> And apparently, it's like, in 1965, America introduced the Immigration Act, and that's Mm. when, officially, America started to change. Yeah. Okay. And that's a nice little touch about where this guy's coming from. He looks like he's from 1965. He still has these attitudes from then. He is racist. He is sexist. He is misogynist. He is all these things. But at the same time, I don't personally think that the defense character is a truly unlikable character. He never goes, for me, too overboard with his racism or sexism or stuff until the certain point in which the movie is wanting you not to like him anymore, in a way. Like, you've been given this character stuff in here, but it never goes too far until a certain point when he has the obvious point of no return, which he references in the movie. Mm. Yeah, by, by, by the end, when he is sexually assaulting his ex-wife, you're like, oh, yeah. yeah, okay, this guy is going to die. Yeah. yeah, like basically from like the not even from the pier onward, I wouldn't even know. I'm not exactly sure what the point is where it flips, but yeah, I agree that there's points at the beginning where you're like, oh, this guy's comical, or this guy has like right is frustrated for reasons that we can relate to. And it's there are two things for me that where I was like, okay, I get that this guy is bad. One is when uh, Robert Duvall's character meets his mom, uh, and we learn that he was the kind of person that we hear about in the news that do yep. like school shootings and stuff like he was very quiet he never talked to people he had a lot of problems that weren't addressed and mm. then most importantly you got to remember where this is coming from historically like where in 1993 we're at we're talking about the rodney king riots yeah we're talking about a black man saying he's not economically viable that guy gets yep. arrested by the mm-hmm. police uh defense gets to continue walking around with an assault rifle. right yeah you know? that's a good point you have that you have you're realizing like this is a moment in los angeles history you also have a moment in like america's like corporate history where people like defense the reason he's called that the reason his license plate says that is that he worked as a defense like contractor mm-hmm. for the military yeah trying to help protect america he's he always saw his job as essential and important he's and a it's patriot. no longer essential and it's no longer important exactly and that adds to the grander picture of the thing exactly like what i find interesting is most of the characters in this movie we don't find out their first names most of them don't even have names in the credits they're just this character when it comes to the economically viable guy it is very poignant that he is a black man being arrested and he's protesting him and defense are very on a very similar path except for one went one way one went the other they're dressed the same i think a lot of this movie deals with the fact that in america people 
of all races, all creeds, all 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 levels do have some form of dehumanization, whether it be the Korean store owner being mistaken for what race he is. Or, I love that. Or and the both, fact that both, both actors, the fact that both actors are actually the opposite race in real life is really funny. Like the mm-hmm. guy who's like, I'm I'm Japanese is actually Korean, and the one who's Korean is actually Japanese in real life. So that's oh, actually that's quite odd. Uh, the Korean store owner is in Babylon Five, by the way. Uh, hmm. oh, wow. He played a ra- he played a racist in season one. Oh, he's like, okay. did you brand this person? And he's like, no, I oh, didn't. Oh, the branding. Yep. Um, he's a very great character actor. But I think that that's a point of this movie is it's exploring all of these topical social issues that are the that are boiling up yeah. in American society. This is a guy who's lived his life following the rules. He's following the so-called American dream. He got married, had a kid. He has a job protecting the country. And then, well, that war finished. It's no longer existing. They're winding down. I mean, one of the big money support systems in L.A. at the time was the military defense aspect. And so that got taken away. So a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people had to go back into the society which they're no longer qualified for, which is what he says. is like, I'm... Uh, I'm, I was it too smart or overqualified or the other way around? Overeducated, overeducated, underqualified, yeah, underskilled. I don't know which way round it is anymore because it's so confusing the world that they live in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was gonna say that that same line really struck me as um, a line that's valuable. I, I think the value of this film is as a movie that you watch in like a modern America class you know i i didn't really Mm. come to it particularly enjoying it like as a viewing experience on its own terms Uh, i think maybe if i'd seen it like with my dad who just loves movies and we like to watch these kinds of movies together maybe i would have liked it but watching it on my own it was very much from that kind of like intellectual uh how does this fit into the modern context perspective? And what struck me about Mm. it from that lens is like this film, if you take the time to analyze it really does a great job of mapping the, the mind of white male entitlement and showing you through the, the um, these vignettes, the things that those kinds of people choose to get upset about is what really struck me because you see him, you see defense getting upset about like the cost of a can of Coke and the, they're not serving breakfast anymore. And he doesn't bat an eye when the neo-Nazi store owner shouts, uh, you know, demeaning epithets towards the potentially homosexual clients of his store. Defense just kind Mm. of is like, yeah, that's, I'm not bothered by well, he's that. He's hiding. Like, I, he's I, he's too busy trying to hide somewhere. It's kind of an awkward kind of direction when it's like it's more focusing on the neo-Nazi than defense. Yeah, but he's he kind of like, like trying to hide. He just doesn't care, you know. Like he doesn't really see that as a problem, in a way mm. that I think helps to understand him. Like all of the things that he perceives as problems are self-focused, and I think that also that- helps to read the. Or it struck me when the guy is protesting and saying that he's not economically viable. When I saw that, clearly, my read of it is like, this guy is saying he can't get a loan because he's black. Full stop, that's what he's saying. And then defense is like, huh, 
not economically viable. That's what I am. And is like completely mm. ignoring the context and just focusing it on himself and his own struggles and like making it exactly. all about the kind of his, his um, disaffection instead of seeing where in the context of these larger issues he he sits and so i think that in that way the film is is really useful as a kind of like scholarly exercise yeah i think well, that's just him over the edge with the neo-nazi is not that he's a neo-nazi and that he collects military paraphernalia and hopes that it works it's that he breaks his daughter's snow globe and he's well like, that's no it. it's it's even before that it's the fact that the neo-nazi thinks they're the same yeah, that's you what and I were annoys good. That's him. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an American. You're a sick asshole. Yeah, he's expressed before that point his displeasure that he's being viewed as a thief or uh, a, a vigilante. To him, it's a very simple. Here's the best way I describe defense. This is a character that purely lives in the present. He has no concept or no predilection for the future mm-hmm. or the past. He lives in the now, and that's all he sees is the now. He has no idea what he's going to do when he actually gets home. And once he starts actually figuring it out, we, the audience, are indicated to, oh, he's probably going to kill his family. And then Robert Duvall says at the end, you are most likely going to kill them. And he still doesn't understand that that's the case. This is a selfish character. This is a narcissistic man who ruined his own marriage because of his anger issues his his narcissism his mother is is completely mentally broken by just living with him mm, yep. uh, this is a, a horrifying uh character study on what happens to certain individuals uh, a part of his problem is you know, he's in that phase of life where everything is being made redundant. He, The middle-class American identity is mm-hmm. disappearing in front of his eyes. His job's going away. This, this international threat is going away. All this stuff. When it comes to the economically viable guy, it is definitely, to me, about his race. But also when you do listen to what he is saying about himself, he's worked this nine-to-five job. He works overtime, this, 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 and he still doesn't get a break. Mm-hmm. defense sympathizes with what he can be able to sympathize because he is a mentally broken individual who has very little compassion outside of himself he sees a, a mirror there of himself like yeah i work that and it didn't work for me and mm-hmm. it is a very selfish attitude i think that that performance from the um, not economically viable guy is one of those great little performances like a one scene wonder but like when he says don't forget me I genuinely don't forget him. I, I still think about him to this day. Yeah. I'm like, is that guy okay? Special <laughs> um, defense remembered him too. Now, I think let's talk about Robert Duvall's character arc and his story, and then we can delve more into defense and stuff, because this movie always gets the conversation of the Michael Douglas character, because Michael Douglas, I think we can all agree, gives one of the best performances of his career, yeah? Do it we... is a good performance, absolutely. I think he's it's just very... always that good. He's a very magnetic yeah. performer. This is his favorite performance of his career. That's weird. Really? Too. I can believe that. <laughs> and, well, I actually find it very interesting, Michael Douglas, because he considers himself a producer and then an actor. Weird. So he said that okay. he chose this role for purely selfish reasons of ego, and he's free to admit that, because he made movies like uh, Basic Instinct and Black Rain and so many other movies from a producer standpoint of what is the best movie to be in? Well, he chose this because he wanted to have the best, like, what is the best role instead? Mm. Because he had been playing... When you look at his career, he actually plays a lot of reactionary characters. Yeah. He is a character, actor, who reacts to the story 
And the ones where he is actually the center of it, like Wall Street or the guy pushing the buttons, is some of his best work. Mm-hmm. So this is one of those. So I, I think that it, whenever people bring up, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal didn't get Oscar nominated for Nightcrawler, I just sit there and go, yeah, well, Michael Douglas didn't get it for Falling Down either. So what are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I always point to this and go, that's a, that's a snub performance. And to me personally, I think Defense has more layers as a character than the character in Nightcrawler. But that's just me. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, with Robert Duvall, Prenagast, I think he often gets overlooked because Robert Duvall's giving a very quiet performance. He's very subdued in comparison. Michael Douglas is doing a lot of showy stuff. He's funny. He's, he's crazy. He's intimidating. Well, Robert Duvall's playing like the cop on his last day. Now, I will ask all of you guys this, Bartek, with your first viewing, you'll have to answer this. Did you expect Robert Duvall to die because <laughs> it's his last day as a cop and they bring it up a lot? I do remember on the first viewing, when it was first brought up, where he was on the highway as well in the first scene, that uh, it was his last day, and I thought, like, oh, are they going to be playing that trope? But then the film, like, beats you over the head with that trope, <laughs> so it was really this big question of, like, are you going to subvert it, or are you going to play it straight? So I, yeah. I wasn't really sure where it and was And the film going. can go either way, because it goes with so many kind of tonal shifts. Mm. What about you guys? Did you actually expect Duval to get killed at the end of this? A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I totally did. And then in the moment where Michael Douglas is like, Hey, you could, I could kill you or you could kill me. I really thought that Duval was going to agree that they shoot each other at the same time. Uh, well, yeah. they kind of do. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Technically, I guess um, they do. <laughs> what about you, Alan? Uh, yeah. I mean, there is plenty of stuff that I guess I would call predictable about this movie slightly. And so the cop on his last day does totally get shot. That's the rules. Um, I was a little disappointed by his ending just being like, and then he does move to Arizona because I think that the film Uh, could have said a lot more. Well, okay. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll get into that because that is something that people find very divisive and and interesting. So Bartek, Mm -hmm. do delve us into what happens with Prenegast and his kind of story in this, in this film. From your understanding? From my understanding? Well, it's his last day on the force, and he's been introduced or established as this character who... He's got a wife that's very stressed out about the fact that he's a police officer, and it delves into that whole idea of, like, oh, there are some... If if you're married to a police officer, you've got to have a certain, like, steeled will about yourself, Mm -hmm. and this character just does not have it. So Prendergast, uh, Robert Duvall, is a character that now stays behind a desk, mostly... Yep. And even on his last day... He got wounded at some point mm-hmm. as well. That got mentioned. Mm. But yeah, yeah. So he's a desk He's a desk jockey now. Desk jockey, yes. And um, and the, uh, with, with what I said about them beating you over the head with this whole, oh, it's your last day thing, uh, that attitude towards him that it's his last day kind of sort of makes... The, the, the other officers kind of see him trying to take his job seriously as not that big a deal because oh look you're going to be out of here in a few hours so don't try to be like oh one and they last don't hero. and they don't like him anyway and they don't like him except for one some of them seem to have some sort of affection for him but there is this whole like disrespect they have towards yeah, him I think it's more pity the pity. ones who have some are more pitiful except for her his his not partner like they're partners but she's not actually his partner mm. um the chick from Total Recall um I I do think that they oh my God, that's what she's from. Sorry. Yeah. No, I do think that they have some affection for him, but definitely they're not respecting him enough. Because this story deals with a lot of stuff. There's a lot of toxic masculinity yeah, in this police office. He yeah. 
he gets a lot of disrespect from everyone because he is taking what they consider to be the easy road. He doesn't cuss. That's a real big thing. Yeah, especially for the guy, the boss guy. The boss, who's the dad in uh, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Mm. <laughs> um, I always think yeah. of that. I'm yeah. like, I'm waiting for him to be like, the wrong kid died. Um, there's a lot of to- toxic masculinity going on, but obviously Duval's story is slowly figuring out the case that everyone's ignoring because they've got so many other things going on and he- so many ideas of police officers have of racial profiling and simplifying things because of this, 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 and Duval's the only one who's kind of noticing a pattern mm. going on. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned his wife. Yes. A big part of his story is what you guys mentioned before, his character arc of standing up to his wife. That is a part, that's his character arc on a level, on one of the levels is standing up to his wife. So you guys, my impression is you guys didn't like this. So here's the thing is... What you're saying about how he is in this kind of like toxic masculine work environment and part of it seems like the resentment that some of the cops have towards him is that he's he doesn't play along in that environment. Um, like you said, he doesn't curse. He's like not that interested in there being a stripper there at his, his uh, going away party. And mm. he... So it feels like, you know, that's kind of his um virtue as a character is that he's not okay. getting drawn into what's kind of like scummy about the people around him and mm. what then bothers me is that actually he is kind of a scummy guy like he clearly is attracted to mm. the his uh partner oh really okay okay clear like okay. i to- i'm totally reading it that way as like he's into her i read it as that they had had an affair yeah really something i like read it completely as like a i read it as a father-daughter relationship no, because no, no, he no, no, lost no. his daughter and she's kind of like a daughter figure that's how i read it no. i even read his relationship with his wife as kind of like a father-daughter relationship because he treats her like a child i thought that's what you were talking about actually but no i <laughs> that think more for me so personally buy, yeah me personally, that's my belief of his character because he is a father. He's someone who's always wanted to be a father mm-hmm. and he never, well, he got the chance I, and he lost it. I think the that's line me. that convinces me that he has like kind of a sexual attraction to her is when they're leaving the restaurant and he says, by the way, something I've never said about my wife is that I love her. And when he says uh, okay. that, I'm like, I don't believe you, dude. <laughs> I'm not Re- buying oh, it. Like, wow, you okay. are, you we'll are saying that. that to her to like prove it to yourself like he's so slow to say i love you and oh okay interesting wow i didn't read anything like that well okay that's interesting i must be incredibly boring because i took everything at face value (laughs) yeah i i took that at face value what about you alan what did you feel about this whole dynamic with the character arc of of duval's character and like his wife and the office well, if, if the last scene where he tells her to shut up didn't read as so triumphant, then I would have been mostly fine and been like, yeah, his his relationship and his difference from defense is obviously that one of them had a daughter who lived and the other one did not. And one of them mm. took his realizing that he's useless and went postal, to use a oft-used uh, term, yep. and the other one went to Arizona. But my favorite scene with Robert Duvall by far is the most the single most stressful film in this movie uh, the most stressful scene rather and this is a, a film that also has a scene where someone shoots up at mcdonald's <laughs> so this is saying uh, something. a whammy burger thank you <laughs> excuse me a whammy. we know what we're talking about but yes 
Uh, it's the scene where he's on the phone with his wife and also with the woman who's in the whammy burger. Yep. And everybody is like, do not hang up on me for one second. Say what you're going to say and finish it. Yeah. It's just like thickly concentrated anxiety boiled up into one single scene where everyone is like, this is the moment you need to talk right now. And he's like trying to control it and losing it. And that moment is what especially sells Alan's reading, I think, of there either being an attraction or there having been an affair between the two of them because he's like... Mm. He's like okay. so, like I wouldn't say he's comfortable, but it he's definitely knows the rhythm of how to do this, of how to like put well, his wife on yeah. hold and then talk to her, and it's clear that what he wants is to just keep being a cop. And oh yeah, he's he, a cop who can't stop. And he resents his wife and doesn't want to go to Arizona and doesn't oh, really okay. like her and can't oh, say okay. it, and. I think that that makes him shitty, and then okay, yeah, and then when he's I'm like, I'm so shocked. I have such a completely different read on this character. I, want, I don't think he's a heroic heard. guy. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. I want to hear the read on when he sings. <laughs> when he sings, when did he sing? London bridges falling down. Oh yeah, when they say the title of the movie. Mm. That um, was that that's was what that, that's what I creepy. read. Is, wow, he said the title of the movie. <laughs> what was that saying? That was. Cr- oh, yeah, I said that, that my read of that scene is wow. He said the title <laughs> of the movie. Okay, for me. Okay, so for me, my read on Prendergast is yes, he is a cop who can't stop. He is always a man who's going to be a cop, but also he's always going to be a man who's a father, even though he didn't mm-hmm. get that opportunity. The thing he had dreamed in life was being a father. Now, what I find very interesting is. His relationship with his wife in the office could have been a movie on its own because when you break mm-hmm. it down, it is a really, really, really tragic story that he is a part of where him and his wife, she was a beauty pageant queen. She was a woman who solely relied on her on her beauty. She didn't really have the ability to think ahead or have a career. So she was someone who relied on her looks. He wanted a kid. She didn't want a kid. She had a kid for him because, you know, these are the sacrifices that some have to make when it comes to relationships or, uh-huh. or, or marriage or stuff like this. It ruined her figure. And then the kid died, not from anyone or from anything in particular. Sudden, you can't, infant, death, sudden yeah. infant death syndrome. So it's with awful. defense, so it is awful. And with defense and him, I think the difference isn't that one has a kid and one doesn't. It's there's a choice. Duvall says it at the end. You have a choice. I didn't have a choice. You still have the ability. I don't. It's about choices. And Duvall's journey is realizing that he has more choices than, than he realizes. The thing about Duvall and Defense is they're both invisible people. They're both people mm-hmm. that have been either chosen to be invisible or choose themselves. Duvall has chosen it for himself for the benefit of his wife. Yeah. She didn't want him to serve on the streets. She literally thought he died and imagined he was a ghost chasing around the house. That's a terrifyingly sad story. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, he genuinely loves his wife. I don't read this mm. uh, sex angle or anything. I personally believe he genuinely loves his wife, but he's had to give so much up for her that yes, there is a level of resentment there, as there would be, but it's more that when he says that line of, I love my wife, for me, I read it as 100% genuine, and I think for him, his character is repression on a level, where he's had to hide the reason why he's been on this desk for the last 10 years, even from this p- person he considers a friend, because 
He even says, what happens between me and my wife is between us and us alone. And that indicates, you know, and that includes this whole revelation that, you know, I'm not going around, going around saying I, I love her because that's kind of like this masculine thing as well that these characters all have mm-hmm. that he's kind of pushing back. And the realization that is he has to open up about these things. And yes, at the end, he has to be harsh to his wife. But that's a thing that has to happen or else the balance is still going to be off. And at the end, when he does still go to Arizona and he's still like, I'm going to be a cop. I'm still a cop at the end of the day. I personally think it's still all right that he's going to still go to Arizona for his wife because he still loves her. But there's going to be the promise or the idea that the balance is going to be somewhat restored. There's going to be more of a ebb and, f- ebb and flow between the two of them. I didn't read any sinister actions or any subdued sexual stuff between him and the others i think duval is just so charming as well that in another act in other actors hands that character could easily be read more so like that but for me duval is just such a charming likable guy and he's such a person of compassion like and and understanding and empathy that do that that defense doesn't have so that's why there's also a, a, a conflicting thing there. i think these two guys are opposite sides of the psyche where Duval is compassionate and loving and caring but he's still got similar things that defense have or defense doesn't have any compassion or understanding for anyone outside of himself Duval has given up everything of himself for his wife and um, while defense is is taking everything away from his wife and children and child for himself sure and that's what yeah. I read on Prendergast I don't think of him in a sinister character and when he punches the guy at the end the guy insults his wife, and this is the first time in this office, and yes, it's a masculine bravado thing, and I understand what you're saying, but when he punches him at the end, it's him standing up for his wife, because who else is? It's like the two things he could have done there was either punch him or swear, and they saved the swearing for the guy that brought up the you don't swear. Yeah, Captain Yardley. Yeah. Fuck you very much. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Fuck you very much. So I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit, like, whenever I've yeah. watched this with people, I've never heard this interpretation of Prendergast. I think of him as a purely heroic good guy, and at the end, he's faced with the biggest challenge of all you have to execute me is what defense is giving him you're not gonna get away with anything you're not gonna arrest me you have to physically execute me right here now or else i'll do it to you or else i'll do it to you that's the choice you've been given and that's a horrifying thing for him to have to go through as well but he he has to do it because at the end of the day he is a cop i think i just think that his his like selflessness is selfish in the sense that he's withholding what he really feels and what he really wants from his wife. And I think that he's like, because of that distanced himself from her emotionally to a pretty significant extent. Maybe I'm like overselling him being a bad guy. I still stand by there's like something going on with the, his fellow cop. And I still do think that, this movie doesn't walk away with clean hands on the toxic masculinity thing because part of like his final interaction with his wife or one of the last ones is he like the thing that's demanded of him in that relationship and what his arc should be is he needs to be honest with her about like what she asked him at the beginning. Are you just doing this because I want to, or do you really want to? And he needs to honestly say like, look, I kind of don't want to, but the way that he's honest about it is he's like, shut up and make sure that there's dinner for me when I get home. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, uh, skin on the chicken, please. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, I understand. I understand that. For me, I I have a more uh, uh, of a face value interpretation of this character. I feel like the relationships he has with women and people in particular are, are, are more of a fatherly kind of bond due to his background when it comes to children. I love that scene in the hospital when he sees his daughter on the stretcher. That was... The thing I love about this movie is Joel Schumacher uses every filmmaking technique in the book, basically. Like, he has wonderful setups and payoffs, great mise-en-scene, wonderful cinematography. He uses every kind of shot you can use, handheld shots, kind of intense close-ups, extreme long-distance shots, aerial views at some point. Like, he uses every trick in the book that you can to 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 make a film and i think that on the script level this is a really tight script as well for me i this is a one-time writer as well actor writer and it was very hard for this script to get off the ground because of how controversial the subject matter was and they were going to make it a tv movie but michael douglas and his crew were like no 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 this is a great movie that needs to be in the cinemas uh uh, uh yeah i don't know what about you Bart? how do you feel about predagast no, I also agree that I did see it a lot more on a face value level. Um, I will have to admit, though, I didn't really think too much about the whole fatherhood aspect. You mentioning it now is really, like, clicking a lot of things in my head. Um, yeah, I with, with, the, with the whole wife thing, I just saw him as really being dedicated to both his wife and also his work. So, obviously when he's expressing his dedication to his work to his wife, she kind of feels a bit upset about that because she's also been very emotionally damaged. And Yeah. I, I guess the film's trying to say that there's no really easy way to talk to her without making her get really emotional. So I, I felt there was a real struggle there. Yeah. And I do remember, this was this is like 10 minutes ago, you mentioned that he's a much more empathetic character than... Uh, defense. Than Defense. Um... You do see him smile a lot in this film and have, like, little laughs, and I did notice that every time it happened, it was, like, a character bringing up something funny or trying to be funny in a situation where he's not really in the mood for a joke. He will, like, laugh a little bit, you know, play along mm. a little bit, but then he'll, like, transition back into, you know, the point that he's trying to focus on. I found my most... Uh, you mentioned the, the Alan, the phone call scene with him and the Whammy Burger and his wife. The thing that I took... My favourite scene with Duval, other than the peer scene at the end, I think that is the stuff that cinema was made for. But when the two characters finally meet, it's so good. But my favourite scene with him yep. was with Captain Yardley, in which he's going over that his daughter died... And it's like this really tenderly quiet scene, but it's still like, you can tell the captain still doesn't give a shit. Mm. Uh, and at the end... Like, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing my job. But yeah, I love how long the shots linger in that scene for. It's a very well done scene for me where he's like, yeah, we lost her. Oh yeah, her, of course. That must have been rough. It's like, yeah, well, you know, it can be. Like, you know, it's, he's already processed this. I also find it interesting that's so... That he's done such a really, you know, such a good job of hiding his personal life that the captain, who's known him for, you know, a decade or more at this point, has no idea of who this man is other than he sees him at the basic level of he doesn't swear and I don't trust that. And he's got, like, files with information about him on there and he thinks it's He wrong. doesn't talk about his wife. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't talk about his home life because, you know, when he does, it's how do you explain that to someone? You know, it's kind of, like, yeah. how do you do that? Uh, anything else with Prendergast that you want to mention? I find it exhilarating when he does start putting the pieces together, like when he goes to Mr. Lee 
and he's like mm. looking at the 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 billboard because he mm. was there earlier in the day and like all of this great stuff you have the guy who's like uh, i'm in was it limonium tiles myself when they're like pushing the car at the beginning yeah, he's yeah, got yeah, the yeah. badge <laughs> that was funny that was oh yeah that was funny. great I think that guy is the writer of the movie. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Abby Rose Smith, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's so mm-hmm. weird because it's kind of hard to tell because like Guy on Freeway is his credit, but I'm like, which guy? <laughs> There's a few freeways. <laughs> guy. It, uh, I don't know which one, but he... Linole- Linoleum Tiles guy is a better credit. Yeah, but, that would have been um, great, but uh, yeah, pretty gus. Ryan, to speak to your question, to speak yeah. to your question, you asked that was what we think or what I think about Prendergast. Yeah. Um, I think it's okay to believe in my heart of hearts that this film is not portraying neither defense nor Prendergast as sympathetic. It's fine. The movie still works in a lot of ways. I'm not saying the movie's bad because I'm not trying to galaxy brain this and say actually both of them suck. So every neo-noir film is like actually the detective is bad. That's just the way the genre works. Right. You know? And yeah. they are different they are different sides of the same coin and they're both bad and like I've seen The Departed. I've seen, you know, everything that's like this movie i've seen other robert duvall movies <laughs> exactly i've seen network which is yeah you know hits its points a lot better than this movie does in a lot of ways uh, yeah uh but the, the stuff that landed with me for this movie was just how prescient it felt again talking about where where white men were at in 93 mm. and the frustration that like defense all you have to do is learn how to use the internet and you're gonna be one of the top paid people in the country you just need to t- Work on your own self. You don't need to kill people. Yeah, but that's you obviously can, you can still. Yeah, but even if he was in the internet age that we're in now, there's not even a guarantee that that for him in his brain that would be a case because his life has fallen apart in his brain. He's lost his marriage. He's lost his job. He's lost his identity as a as a whole. I don't know with the way that this character is constructed that it, there would be a genuine in the way that the film portrays it like for him himself as a character to genuinely reform because he has set in stone his mentality. Like at the end he's given an out and he still refuses it because he sees this is the only way this can go. He's a character that's made up their mind on certain things and not on others. Uh, We've talked a lot about the complications and intricacies of this movie, but did you guys have fun moments with this movie? Because I think of this movie as a very fun movie as well. Um, were there any fun things that you enjoyed? <laughs> <laughs> oh, certainly. Certainly. I mean, Magellan was talking to me before we got on mic about the scene where the homeless gentleman keeps trying to solicit money from that defense funny, and yeah. asking him, like, can I, can I have some food? Can I have some money? Can I have your briefcase? Why won't you give me your briefcase? You're an asshole. And then he gives him the briefcase and all it has is a, it has a sandwich and an apple and it has like a full day, like a meal. And it's like, yeah, where, where, does, I, where does he, he eat his lunch? Yeah, where does I, he eat his lunch? I love the line of uh, with, with the, that guy who's asking for money where he's like just hopping between things. He's like, <laughs> he's a vet, man. Yeah. He's like, how could you do this to a veteran? And then he keeps following him and he's like, I haven't eaten in three weeks. And he's like, <laughs> his mouth is full of a sandwich. I love I love the way that scene ends when, when he throws the apple and Michael Douglas just casually kicks it with like a little jaunty, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he keeps it's going. And I'm like, kick. yep. That's One cute. of the things I think that makes this movie less of a complication when it comes to the white guy evil protagonist, say in comparison, say something like God Bless America, I don't know if you've seen that movie, is Michael Douglas's performance. I think he does a really great jo- job of grounding this in a serious drama whilst also adding some levity to it. So it makes you as the audience feel 
like conflicted that you like him or that you enjoy his presence even when he's being a terrible person like for me personally when he's tearing up that korean store i kind of i find it funny i find it amusing when he's like how much for this and the guy tries to like say it's less than what it is and he's like good try and yeah, like this good. whole this whole aisle suspect and like knocks the whole yeah, thing he over. has quipped throughout the movie and they never feel out of place. Like, for me, the humor always feels realistic. It never feels like, and he is a gag now. Unless a character's telling a gag. Like, you know, he's office mates yeah. in the precinct. I just, I always like it. I liked it more when those jokes would come from characters other than him. Because just the morality of, like, finding him funny really bothered me. But, like, other moments that I was amused by, um, in that sense, I really loved in the whammy burger uh the character of sheila and how she's, she's like by michelle pfeiffer's younger sister oh wow um yeah. and and how she's like fucking with her boss during this really terrifying <laughs> situation um and michael yeah, Doug, uh, defense is like you know i feel weird calling you by your first names and she's like you can call me miss Folsom." and he's like sheila <laughs> shut up uh i love yeah. that and See, I, I, I yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, I think that I think that is such a great scene because it makes you feel tense. But the characters that it's happening to, some of them are finding humor in it, or at least adding levity. Like the scene ends with the little boy being the only one who agrees with him. <laughs> <laughs> right when he says, "Can anyone raise their hand?" That and was when he's so in the funny. Place, I am I the only one who sees the problem here? And like the fact that the little boy, you know, someone who's got less like you know inhibitions in terms of being in, like the adult constructions that we have of societal norms the little kid's like yeah i see the problem of course the little kid will be the oh, only yeah. one and later on a little kid's the only one that knows see, how to use a bazooka see for me i've seen a lot of these brooding white guy has a vengeance movie like taxi driver and god bless america and king of comedy and all this and i find this a bit of a relieving thing that that he does have some levity to him because it makes him feel more of an understandable person because i think the thing is he is that kind of guy who shoots up the school who's been mm -hmm. often said as he was such a nice guy. He was my next door neighbor. I couldn't see him doing anything like this. But when we scratch the surface more, when we see what's happening with the wife, with the home videos, oh, mm. those home videos are like some of the most haunting things ever because they just feel so real. Well, the film so, ends on one of them. <laughs> yeah, on a, a slightly happier one, but not really. Well, the dog's watching it, so the right. dog clearly wants revenge. Uh, but, you know, I find that it's a bit of a breath of fresh air in that kind of genre of movie that... You do like this guy at some point, or you do find it humorous. Uh, to me, I do love the comic delivery of, yeah, to the golf guy. Yeah, mm. and now you're going to die wearing that stupid little hat. How does that make you feel? And like, that's the end of that scene. I love the comic delivery from Douglas with that line, because it, in other movies, it could just be like a really dour, grimacing, like, yeah, I've just fucking murdered you. How do you feel? Mm. But uh, the turning point for his character, I would say, is once he kills the neo-nazi right that's the turning Wait, the proper turning point you're saying when he goes from white shirt to black shirt he turns <laughs> yeah when he goes from <laughs> military when he goes to military attire i mean really he turns at the very beginning of the movie when he leaves his car like that's it's just all a yeah, decaying spiral down, from there yeah, but downhill. once he kills a person that's when it really goes extra one of the things I find very interesting is the editor of this movie brought up something very interesting that really adds to the prevalence of you thinking Robert Duvall is going to die at the end. Now, these are some of the things that I've never thought about before. There's a scene in which a, a Latino gang tries to shoot him. Mm -hmm. I found that mm -hmm. scene very scary because he doesn't flinch when mm. he's being shot at. That's right. terrifying. Yep. 
and he grabs the Uzi and he's playing like he's being all cocky and he's like, ah, you learned learn to shoot and all that kind of stuff. And he shoots him and he misses and he goes, I missed. And then he shoots him in the leg, right? Originally, that scene was cut, the scene of him being shot in the leg, just specifically that shot. And at the end, people realized from watching that cut that it was going to be predictable that Robert Duvall wouldn't die at the end because we've never shown at that point with that being cut that this character is that unpredictable. Mm-hmm. So a simple cut of some violence can really affect a movie. And to us, we've seen the cut where he shot the guy in the leg, and in the subconscious of the viewer's brain, we're realizing that this guy is capable There's of anything. Yeah. Because later he kills a neo-Nazi who's attack. You know, and usually the people he kills or attacks are usually more justified. But this moment where he mm-hmm. he's taking more glee and shooting the guy in the leg and proving his point, shooting a man while him, he's down, yeah, makes him more of a threat as a character and makes you, the mm, audience, a little bit more uneasy. So I find it interesting, little filmmaking tricks that can really alter a film. I mean, that's one of them. Um, what did we think of the neo-Nazi? Oh, go uh, on. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to connect that to another scene that I really enjoyed. Um, like, that understanding adds tension, not only to whether Robert Duvall's character lives or dies, but to the other moments, other vignettes mm. that Defense goes through. Like, one of the ones that I was amused by... Um, was when he's trying to walk on the road that's blocked off for construction. And yeah. he gets in the back and forth with the construction worker and is like, admit yeah. that this is pointless. Um, and if we hadn't seen him do that, we would have thought, like, he's not going to do anything to this construction worker guy. Um, but now and, we're and like, that's, Ooh, yeah, it's a real threat. And, he, and it's also yeah. neat that the, the construction thing ties in because what's the reason he got out of his car? because there was constructions on the road that you find out later isn't even for anything. It just adds and adds and adds to the mental breakdown of this character. When you find out literally everything that's happening to him in his brain, and sometimes it is actually confirmed, is because society and it's pointless and things just have to happen because of this thing and this thing and this thing. So it adds and adds and adds. Mm -hmm. Now, let's talk about... Sorry, the other part of that scene, and then we'll move on, but the other part of that scene that was amusing to me was the part where um the little kid teaches him how to use the bazooka because he saw it on exactly. tv that i loved as <laughs> like just kind of a isolated critique of you know kids are way too used to violence violence yeah in in media movies and video games and stuff and uh, i thought that yeah. was pretty sharp yeah why do you know how to fire a bazooka? I don't know. I saw a show about it. Yeah, I saw it on the news. <laughs> what show is he said that? he saw it on the news on on the in the, or, like yeah. on a 60 minutes type show which is scary um now let's talk about the neo-nazi in the room the character mm-hmm. of the neo-nazi who actually does have a name but they still credit him as surplus store owner so that you just remember that everyone's dehumanized um that character obviously um feels very present <laughs> in in the world because yeah. the rise of these kind of guys um the actor of this guy uh was in apocalypse now so this is like robert duvall bringing friends along who was he in apocalypse now i can't um, remember but he was in it so but okay. uh what did we think of this character what he does to affect the plot and the performance overall um i've known people like this guy not literally neo-nazis at least that i'm aware of but people who listen to police radio and have stores of old military equipment and have this like fetishization of of weaponry and like he pulls out the can of gas and says it's empty and that means that it was used isn't that amazing and mm. and then a, that's when he has the flip where he's like they really killed some and then he uses a slur 
and he's criticizing the homosexuals outside and he's using the N word, which is like really just completely slamming him into like super comical villain territory. But, but like he, he would these use are totally it. people yeah. that exist. Yeah. These are people that can own stores and shops and can talk to the police and he can be shitty to everyone. And this guy gets off fine until finally defense comes in and it's like you are interfering with my life and I don't want to relate to you. I don't want to have any evidence of you because nobody should ever associate the two of us together together. When in reality they're they are only a couple meters apart. The, really. the director Joel Schumacher said with that scene that the irony that that with defense is he 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 doesn't see himself as the same as that as that guy, but that's because defense has a system of judgments and morals that he believes to be justified, but so does the neo Nazi. And at so the end the guy, of the day, of they're both hurting people mm. and they're both prejudiced mm-hmm. so there's they really the... are the same on there's... a level except well... for you know some you know there's still differences but yeah they... there is there's literally a mirror in the scene so yeah he shoots the mirror <laughs> i did love that scene's intensity i think the editing's really good with him and the close-up of his mouth and how obviously you know there's that kind of uh you know the prison rape kind of sh- shooting of it because he's like this is how they're gonna bend you over when i put you in prison and all that and like give it to me give it to me and this is why the film for me such great filmmaking because early in the movie you had the latino gang attack him and he takes their knife and then he puts it in his pocket it's simple set up and pay off you know you real you put a knife in this act blah, blah. but it does for me a good job of you forgot about the knife for quite some time because he never yeah. used it and then he right. used it here and you're like oh great and same with the water pistol the very first scene of the daughter yes. is her yeah. asking to fill up the water pistol you see it at the end so many same with the road this is one of those scripts and films where it's like it never cheats it always mm. follows through on everything even the dog <laughs> like you have the grown-up dog you have the little puppy in the thing like oh great great they're actually showing like where the dog came from and how it was used as a manipulative tool to help him get back in good graces with the daughter and the wife like mm. all of these things pay off obviously he kills this neo-nazi and that's when we have the turn and we have the great speech with him on the phone to his wife and he's like i'm basically at the point of being evil now and i kind of know that and we're just going to have to see what happens when I arrive at the house, basically. And it's a wonderful scene. I think it's one of those scenes that encapsulates so many nuances of this character and how he's such a mentally broken guy. And he still thinks at that point he's justified. But we, the audience, know he's not. We're like, oh, God, okay, you know, like, this guy is full-on psycho. Like, at that point, you, the audience, are very much against him. But you're still following him because that's the point of an anti-hero or, you know, a villainous hero. I mean, at this age of movies, we are very much embracing anti-hero kind of characters. And Defense is one of those, you know, kind of characters that are influencing the movies we have today and society as well, you know, and he was influenced mm. by society. Um, so, yeah. right, what's what's that show, The Boys? The, the Boys. Amazon show yeah. about the bad. So there's that. And then so just briefly, two things I think about, like progression and editing and build up that the movie did really well. Yeah. Uh, one is we haven't really talked about the wife, the, yeah. the ex-wife rather, Barbara Hershey. Yeah, um, her plotline really is a—it's a really crystal clear answer of why when survivors of assault uh, are asked like, "Why didn't you report this?" This is exactly why. Mm. You know, she goes through all the right channels. She has evidence. She has her own story. She's a first-person account, and people give her skeptic skeptical looks. And they say, okay, we'll send someone. And by the end of the movie, Robert Duvall's like, why did no police go to this place? We told them the guy's there. And they're like, oh, we went three times. We can't go a third time. Yeah, we can't justify like, the budget <laughs> of sending it up. <laughs> we can't justify it. It's, it's just so sad. Her, 
it's really sad. Her her story is so heartbreaking. And then I think the other thing that that progressive the film really like subtly that I liked was uh, defense getting a better arsenal or a stronger arsenal, yeah, almost like a GTA character or something. Yeah, he basically gets we- better weapons as the movie goes on. Too. I remember he gets a rocket <laughs> launcher. Like, I remember the first time we watched it. Um, I was thinking that they were doing like that old story of like the guy that starts off with a bit of straw and he keeps trading it with other Paper people clip. to like get better <laughs> and better things, and then in the end he becomes a rich yeah. man or something like that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's doing that because in in the beginning he gets the bat from the from Mister Lee. Yeah. And he uses it to be like, prices aren't fair. It's very like small scale violence, but it's potent. And then he gets uh, a handgun and then he gets a submachine gun. And he gets a bag of submachine guns. A knife, guns. obviously. Then he yeah. gets mil- At one point. He gets a knife. And then he has, by the end, he's in full combat fatigues and military attire. Yeah. But the film makes a point in the scene that John's talking about with the little kid where it's like, I don't even know why I have these weapons anymore. Like, what were you planning to do with the rocket launcher? Mm-hmm. What were you going to fire it at? He's like, I don't know, the the thing in front of me, the bad Yeah, thing. the bad yellow like, monster. He did not have a plan And then, that. to go to your point, at the end, he just has a water pistol. <laughs> like, it's exactly. just so yep, he upgraded all the way. nuanced things. The music is very good in this. James Newton Howard did the score for this. So that's the guy who did yep. the Harry Potter movies, I believe, I think. What was that? James Newton Howard who did the music for this. He did. He's done many soundtracks. Did at least the first two. But yes, he's done. uh, There were so many great scenes in this movie. Great character beats. Great moments that you know we could go on more and more about. But I think the the two prevalent ones that we we should touch upon is definitely the scene in which he takes that family and kind of talks about how they're going to go to, you know, hear how he's going to go home and what's going to happen. And the peer scene, uh, two big scenes that I think mm. we should definitely touch upon. Now, Bartek, when he does jump over that fence and there is a family there that's just chilling out, minding this plastic surgeon's house, how did you feel about this scene and how it transpires? I think I remember the first time I watched it, I was a bit confused about what was going on. But basically, they're yeah, the, the, I I now get that the yeah, they were looking after another person's house. Um, at this point, the police were chasing him. Right? Yeah, because he was at the golf course and he shot up the golf cart and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and th- oh, this is another thing where he gets kind of offended by how they see him. They think that he that he's holding them hostage yes but he kind of just like drags them along with him to to yeah hide to hide yeah he doesn't see it as like anything he doesn't see the context that anyone else sees it from he's like i'm a family but i'm i've got a family why don't i hurt yours he doesn't realize that for half the scene he's dragging along a little girl with his bloody hand and he thinks he's hurt her yeah but it's him himself he's like he's so mentally deteriorating at this point and so stressed out and so like in his own head Mm. that he doesn't understand what his impact is to his family. What I really like about this scene is he doesn't have a go at these people. He sees them as innocent people. Mm. He realizes that he's actually on a level. He he does kind of understand in his own way that he's hurting these people. He's putting them into a situation. He's not going to take them as hostages. He feels horrified at the thought that he's hurt the door. Because he yeah. thinks he's like them. Mm. You know, he, he he's trying to go to a home that isn't his anymore to a family that doesn't exist for him anymore, and he sees this family that exists, and he's like, yeah, I'm equal to these people, and I'm just going to go home, I'm hold also my hands, hand out with my family, hand, yeah. hand, hold my wife's hand, we'll talk about adult things, we'll all go to sleep in the dark, and it'll be beautiful. And it's like, he delivers that speech so beautifully, Michael Douglas, that it almost makes you not realize that what he's 
kind of talking about, at least in my interpretation, the film kind of goes on with this, is he's most likely going to kill them and himself. Mm-hmm. Michael mm-hmm. Douglas disagrees with this interpretation, by the way, but uh, do everyone else in the film believes this interpretation, but he doesn't. He's like, no, I don't, I don't think that, but, you know, I think Sorry, that. Sorry, he doesn't think yeah, that. Yeah, Douglas doesn't believe that he would have killed the family at the end. He doesn't personally believe that, mm-hmm. but uh, I do. And that scene is very emblematic of that and he talks about how he lost his job and how everything's kind of fallen apart what about you two guys what did you feel about this great scene alan you got a thought there i didn't really have a have a particular opinion about whether he was going to kill them or not i think i sort of disagree with um what robert duvall says about him like oh guys like you always have a plan i don't think he had a plan at any point along this way i think maybe it would have ended up there but i don't Mm. think that that was like something that he was intending to do i think he genuinely was deluded the entire film that like yeah he would show up and things would be okay right the only ending for him that made sense to me was that he was going to fall into the ocean i thought he was going to like you know kill himself by jumping into the ocean because he was the whole point is that they're saying He's going to Venice. He's going to he's going to the Venice Pier. He's going like he's go, he has a destination. Yeah, where where else would other Italian? Than that, I'm like, <laughs> right. Where else? Uh, uh, like, what is what he doesn't have a game plan. He doesn't because he, if he's gonna get back with his wife, then and somehow they try to make that work. He's gonna end up killing him, her, and his daughter. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think he is through deluded some, through some incident or through some moment of anger. Like he he was gonna do it. Yeah, I think he doesn't realize it on an intellectual level, but on a subconscious level, I think he has some internal understanding of it because when he's presented with that at the pier scene, which I guess we can transition into, um, mm-hmm. when he does have that realization of I'm the bad guy, he's kind of like me. Like, and he's kind of realizing, like, I, but I did everything they asked me to. And, like, he, yeah. he's kind of putting some pieces together. He even asks, like, when did that happen or something? Yeah, when did he? that happen? Yeah. This pier scene is one of my favorite scenes in a, in a movie. It's one of my favorite ending scenes in a movie. Uh, I love the fact that these two characters finally meet one another. It's one of those things where sometimes when the first viewing, I remember you, Bartek, was mentioning, like, oh, wow, they're finally meeting each other. Like, you, like, you kind of get caught up in the pacing of the movie. Mm. That you're like, oh, I guess they haven't met each other, or wow, they're finally meeting each other. Like, okay, wow, yeah, like it's well, kind of like a big build up to a payoff. Yeah. What I love about this mm-hmm. scene is Duval's performance. You know, he's just so in charge of the scene. Douglas is obviously delivering as well, but like the way Duval's kind of orchestrating the scene and him telling that sto- the story of his life and what's happened while eating popcorn <laughs> and giving the popcorn <laughs> to the little girl and like. You know, showing off his bat, uh, his gun. I also love the fact that the film set up that he didn't have a gun early in the movie because they took it yeah. away, and then he had to take his partner's gun. Um, but right. then it felt like natural for him to reach for it. Then he realized, oh wait, it's not. There. Yeah, it's not there. Hmm. Um, great setup, payoff Ten stuff. Years behind a desk, but still there. Wow. And he had an old gun too. It wasn't even the same kind of newer guns. He had like an old-fashioned gun because he hadn't used it, it in yeah. ten years. Yeah. But I love this piercing. It, the music. Douglas running up to the pier and cornering them, like him taking out the gun and doesn't even realize how like psycho this is. And like you said, Alan, just how disgusting it is when he starts kissing her and thinking that everything's fine. It's going to be all okay. And like, he just, it's so disturbing to watch. 
But Duval, I think, delivers on this scene so well that it isn't just such a miserable, disturbing scene. It adds yeah. some nuances, some flavor to it, and these two characters finally meeting, and it feels like they know each other already, but they don't at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of a fun take on... I mean, I really do enjoy films that follow the structure of kind of parallel protagonists that are destined to collide. Uh, mm. Like, what else does this? Like, Heat does this. Yep. Um, Classic example. Uh, I guess Face Off is like a version of this where they yeah. like diverge yep. and then Definitely. collide and recollide multiple times. Um, yeah. But I, I like the twist here where like the big speech um that's kind of summing it up and and speaking to the heart of things is coming from ostensibly the good guy um which it feels like a a very villain thing to be like this is what you and i have in common um yeah but it coming from duvall's character uh i don't know i i really i liked that um it works because he's he's being that policeman that he has always needed to be. So he's coming across very like a policeman, like, this is a matter of fact. You were going to mm-hmm. do this. This is what's going to happen. You need to not do that. You have a choice. He's dealing with someone that he has to arrest. Yeah, he's he's dealing with it like... Unlike the rest of the film. He's a policeman, finally. Like, he's actually allowed to gung-ho. And you get the understanding he would have been a great policeman if given the opportunity to. Mm. But he didn't, or he chose not to. And good at giving speeches. <laughs> um, He was great at giving speeches. I love that Douglas does like when they shoot off against each other and it is a horrifying thing you know like you have to kill me like she gets insurance i won't i'm not gonna go behind bars like douglas is very set in these old school ways like it's very much like a good guy versus bad guy cowboy and you know sheriff and the reckless cowboy coming to town like it's all very good and i love the fact that douglas would have got him first Mm. like when they shoot against each other Robert Duvall wipes the water off of his face from the pistol and Douglas is just so happy and he's just like, I would have got you. Mm. And like, I find that such an interesting little thing, you know? Yeah, that... He essentially wins despite it being a suicide by cop. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think it's one of those great characters meeting each other and it's the stuff that Schumacher, you know, he really delivers on the cinematography, the music delivers, everyone's delivering great performance. Apparently as well, the first scenes they shot... And that's very difficult to do in a movie. Oh, wow. Because yeah. the actress, Barbara Hershey, was only available for two weeks and then she was going to go to London. Mm-hmm. So they had to shoot that first. And that's a very hard thing to work backwards from that. So I think, you know, this is one of my favorite scenes. I, I sometimes just watch this scene on its own just because it's such a great scene. I think it's definitely the strongest characters. part of the film. Yeah. I don't know. I, I do like when they go to his mom's house. He friends his mom's house. And yeah, that like part's this... funny. Yeah. Funny? <laughs> I find it terribly well, sad. There's a part that's funny. That like, where is he eating his lunch? I thought it was funny. Maybe that's sad. <laughs> I, I find know. that horrifying. Where it's like, okay. where is he going every day? I love in that scene too. You, the mise en scene. If you watch that scene again, you see on the wall faded marks of where pictures used to be. Like these were mm. his wedding photos, and the mum had to take them down. And the photos of his dad are all military. And you don't get any exposition. You just see that and go, oh, I understand. I understand mm. where defenses yeah. come from. 
I get it. I don't need that scene where Duval's like, I've opened up his case and his dad was a general. <laughs> the, the line the line where the mum was like, oh, I don't know where his ex-wife lives. He won't let me know. That, yeah. was, that was very kind of telling. Or That's that good. he just That's he just yeah. eats quietly and she's so afraid that she can't eat and spits out her food and he looks at her like, I want to kill you. She and <laughs> she and Robert Duval's wife should get together and like cheer each other up. <laughs> um, And that's kind of basically it with falling down, you know, the major hits and scenes scenes um this but one one payoff i'll just say that i like to a joke was you've already mentioned the scene with the the veteran um <laughs> that's also a double punchline because earlier on in the film the two uh hispanic gangsters were trying to get his suitcase off him yeah and he <laughs> did not want to give it to them but then in this scene he gives it to the guy and it's got nothing thought, in it and it's just got like three things to eat right. just nothing right. in it he would have he would have died defending that briefcase <laughs> early on um yeah that's that's fallen down you know this is one of those movies that i you know i find it so interesting you know with you two i wasn't expecting like these hot takes or whatever i find it interesting that this movie can still be considered divisive divisive and controversial of a, of a movie where mm. it divides people still to this day and it and when you sometimes say a movie is divisive or controversial, especially ones from back in the day, sometimes that can come across like, oh, that's it, and there's not not much of nuance or stuff sometimes. But mm -hmm. I think that this movie isn't just existing to be controversial or divisive. I think this movie is one of those great character studies of a certain type of individual that lives in society. Uh, I think that the movie's filmmaking and writing uh, us exceptionally done to the point in which it just looks effortless like it just it never feels showy it never feels too grand yet you do have like these sweeping camera shots where the camera's spinning around douglas as is aiming an uzi but it never feels like joel schumacher's waving his hand in front of you going look how look how visual i am like he does in his other movies unfortunately I think it's a shame that Schumacher's never, in my opinion, directed anything as stylish and as as methodically done as this movie. I'm disappointed that the writer of this movie only wrote this and nothing else. You know, it was hard enough for him to get this script off the ground, so he kind of never did anything ever again, which is a mm -hmm. bummer. I think the writing in this alone, is not just the, the, the character study stuff, but the dialogue and the humor... And all of that, and the the way that the film is structured with all these setups and payoffs, and it never feels like it cheats, it's a disappointment that he never got to have the opportunity to do another script. But mm. sometimes, you know, maybe you just have one, and that's okay. Like the woman who did To Kill a Mockingbird, she's like, that's just my one book. And then people are like, no, we're going to get the drafts and put that as a book against your family's wishes. And Joel mm. Schumacher was like, I'm just going to have mm. one movie. I wish he did. It's like, I'm going to do this and nothing else. <laughs> I love him. He seems like such a nice guy, but he seems so clueless about things. Like with Batman and Robin, he's like, yeah, we're making comic books. Not comic book movies, comic books. Um, Bartek, what about you falling down? Wrapping up thoughts? Fucking hated it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, it was... Oh, no, yeah, no, stinger. Right. <laughs> uh, no, I had a I had a good time with it second time around. Uh, this discussion has been very enlightening. Yeah. A lot of different opinions because I, I guess Ryan and I have kind of been on the same, and you guys have been a bit more on your own. So it's it's mm. good. It's a film I've only seen twice, and I've only ever talked about it in the context of Ryan's standing next to me. So yep, <laughs> definitely a good experience. <laughs> okay, guys, what about you? Final thoughts and opinions on on falling down? 
it's a testament to the movie that there you're we're able to have these type of varying reads that is usually the sign of an interesting film worthy of discussion so i'm glad i watched it i don't regret watching it i think it was interesting and it's very of its time i think it definitely is a, a good film to use as a lens into conversations about uh cultural sort of controversies and problems within the american psyche that that americans weren't fully self-conscious of in the 90s or were like beginning to develop a consciousness about that i think we have a much fuller consciousness of now and so bringing it into modern conversations about like what's going on in america kind of helps both to understand that these you know like defense would have voted for trump like these are not uh these are not like Trump era problems. These are problems of America that extend much, much further back. And so it gives that context while also giving these vignettes that are in a way uh, timeless, like seeing him kind of yell at the Korean shop owner to learn the language and stuff. It's like that could have happened yesterday. Um, and the fact that he's still so ignorant is like, yeah, you know how much money my country's paid your country? No, how yeah, much? Like, uh, I, I don't know, but lot. I'm sure it's yeah. a lot. And it's still, what does that matter? What does this guy have to do with that? <laughs> like, what um, does this yeah. Korean store owner have to do with it? But Let's I still, on. I still stand behind the fact that like there, are, there, there are no good guys in falling down. There are better guys. There are guys who are like doing some things right, but overall, like. I, I definitely feel like I said at the beginning that this film is of the ilk of something like Fight Club where everybody's fucked up and the film is trying to offer this really scathing critique and sometimes gets caught up in like having fun with itself that you can mm. push yourself to like compartmentalize. But if you don't read yeah. it actively, then I think you walk away being like, that was fun and not really uh, seeing as much of the critique. Yeah, That's my thought. Fair enough. Um, yeah, Falling Down, still generating some interesting conversations. You see, this is one of those movies that I often go, how come people still don't talk about this one as much? I, I, I go, this film has so much discussion worth in it, and it's like one of those films that I look at and go, oh, not enough people have actually seen it. And people maybe have seen it absorbed into pop culture inadvertently, like Frank Grimes and The Simpsons is based on defense. Oh, oh my goodness, the yeah. <laughs> the dad from Dexter's Laboratory looks pretty much like or, him. <laughs> or I think it was... Oh, boy. I can't remember, but there was a film clip from uh, Dave Grohl. What's his band? I can't remember. But where... Foo Fighters? Yeah, where, where it's a film clip of him just basically doing Falling Down. There's a film clip of that. So it's been absorbed oh. into pop culture, this look he has, <laughs> Michael Douglas... The um, phrase doing falling down. So doing falling down. Um, yeah, guys, thank you so much for, for coming on and discussing this. I, I will preface that, I will say this now, that this is in my top ten favorite movies of all time. <laughs> I, that's not a preface, that's like a post It's uh, a post-credit scene where Michael Douglas comes out and says, I'm Ant-Man. Um, this is one of my favorite performances in a movie, Michael Douglas. I think he was severely yeah, over... Great overlooked and one of his best performances even he agrees it's still his best i was so annoyed they have those youtube videos where it's like an actor breaks down their career and michael douglas did one and he didn't talk about this movie and i was like what's the fucking point what's oh, the point i don't give a shit about ant-man <laughs> um 
But thank you guys so much for, for coming on, talking about Falling Down, the 1993 Joel Schumacher uh, classic gem of cinema. Uh, where can people find you and your stuff? Uh, well, as, uh, as aforementioned, we are the two co-hosts of Chats, a television podcast. That's C-H-A-T-Z. Um, that can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, and every week we're putting out new episodes. If you want to hear more of us beyond that, uh, we have a Patreon. That's patreon.com slash chatspod. Uh, and over there we have bonus content where we watch more stuff and do live commentaries right. like Spin Polish occasionally does. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of fun bonus stuff there too. So check us out at ChatsPod on Twitter if you want to get us on the socials. On the socials. And that's pretty much what we got. Yeah, that's that's that's, yeah, the that's their big, big plethora of stuff. Um, yeah, I've been on one of the episodes. I've been on one of yeah. the Babylon 5 discussions. Yes. Hopefully you'd like to come back on at some point. We'd love to have you back. Oh, good. I'll come in and I'll be like, Falling Down was a masterpiece. How fucking dare you keep comparing it to modern day issues and not enjoy it as a film. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Schumacher did one good movie and should have stopped. (laughs) I don't know. I haven't seen The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Could be great. Yes. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much, guys. Uh, Now, Bartek. Thanks for having us. We loved it. Oh, it was wonderful. Now, Bartek. Chats. We have a movie for next week that's a listening people's recommendation. Would would mm-hmm. you guys like to, to hear what, what, what's being served up to us? Yes, please. I do. Bartek, are you, you keen? I thought you were going to tell me to tell them because I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> we're doing a recommendation from one of our university friends, Lucy. She recommended a ah. 2004 film called Saved. And I have no idea that, what it is oh, and what the, it's about. That, I don't know, Bartok. No, no, is that the one that has an exclamation mark at the end of the title? I think it's like saved from 2004. <laughs> okay. I have no idea what this movie Great. is. There better so... be bells. <laughs> saved by the bell. Oh, Bartok's a huge Saved by the Bell fan. Um, <laughs> in that it's one of the shows I've watched. <laughs> many, many, many pieces of knowledge. Yet he still can't give me a direct answer of why he's called Screech. I've given you the answer every time <laughs> it you ask. It doesn't sound real. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> listening people, make sure to check out uh, Saved from 2004, I do believe it's from. It'll be in the description as well to make sure I got the year right. Instead, it's like, no, it's 2003, you idiots, when Kangaroo Jack came out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Kangaroo Jack, a cinematic masterpiece. An uh, appreciated masterpiece. You can find us on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter and Polished. Uh, spit and polished presents our email is spit and polished at gmail.com in case you want to email us with suggestions some comments about some of the things we've discussed in our episodes threats or your favorite scams, word. or your favorite word i don't know <laughs> who is your favorite chats is it alan or magellan who knows? Maybe it's Ryan. Maybe it's Ryan. He was in one episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they choose me. He's my favorite. He's the sexiest or one. Or me, who wasn't. <laughs> who wasn't. Well, you know, you have to watch television shows and then you can come on. No, no, invite Bartek to like season five, episode 20 of Babylon 5 and he Hell has yeah. no context yeah. for anything at all. He just views it as its own thing. And he's just like, Hell yeah. yeah I read so, that face value. So, so what, people read minds in this show? What's going on? This is nothing like John Oliver. <laughs> What's, the What's the deal? I don't know any of these people. That's okay, Bartek. <laughs> Most people don't. Um, yes, thank you guys for coming on. It was such a pleasure. Hopefully we can have you guys back on for another movie. Maybe one of you guys' suggestions. Who knows? Maybe a movie yeah, you like, great. and then I can be like, it fucking sucked. I'm Whoa. Australian. I'm Australian. Whoa. They don't have to like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, of course, joking. Uh, until next time, listening people, remember to watch Saved from 2004. Um, that, that falling down 
should have gone to Oscar uh, to to find the chats. Just the chats, not the chats podcast. Just, well, just we, the chats. Well, we have chats on this podcast. We so do have chats. That is essentially you found it. Uh, and remember, as always, to be kind to each other. Auf Wiedersehen.